0: All right, let's get at it. And we know that chapters 10, 11, and 12 of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is Paul mostly talking about boasting. The topic of his boasting. And it just is uh, it's just amazing how long he goes on this topic. But we're going to hit the last two verses of chapter 11 now before we wrap it up. Last week he detailed all the suffering he has gone through as an apostle. As a means to compare his experience as an apostle With the naysayers who are attacking him and his apostleship This makes sense, he's always getting attacked for not being an apostle And we end with him writing uh, Last week we talked about this phrase He said, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Which is blessed forevermore knows that I lie not We talked all about the phraseology he used with And the God and Father of of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been comparing his credentials of suffering to the critics, and he says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ knows that I do not lie. So he concludes with one more tale of woe for us out of his life, and it comes from uh, the history of uh, of his uh, work there. It says, In Damascus, the governor under Aratas, the king, kept the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to apprehend me and through a window in a basket was i let down by a wall and escaped his hands so uh he seems to have remembered this experience of peril in his apostolic life he's gone through and said i've been in shipwrecks twice i've been or i've been beaten with rods i've been with stripes i've This and that and that. And then at the end, he seems to remember, oh, and uh, when I was in Damascus, uh, the governor under uh, Eratos and he tells the the story. So Luke describes this tale in Acts 9, and he seems to be just uh, reiterating what Luke has already told us. Luke doesn't tell us the name of the king or give reference to the fact that a governor kept a garrison in that city. Uh, Paul doesn't give the name of the governor, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's probably true that the governor was a Jew, and it, or at any rate, he was influenced by the leaders of the nation of Israel. And uh, it's no doubt, probably, that uh, the Jews were guarding that city and were trying to take Paul as a criminal. So Luke does tell us in Acts 9, 23, 24 that the Jews took counsel against Paul on how to kill him. And that they watched the gates day and night looking for him. This is in all probability in reference to that. Uh, there were three kings who are mentioned by the names Aratas in Scripture. One goes back to Maccabees, Second Maccabees, which is part of the uh, um, apocryphal books that are in the, between the New and Old Testament. And we don't include them. And in the, the Protestant Bibles don't typically include Maccabees. But the Catholic Bible does. Uh, in any case, in Maccabees 2.8, it talks about an Eratos who was king of the Arabians. Of course, that wouldn't have been him. Different time frame. Josephus in Antiquities speaks about uh, an Eratos. But the timing, again, wouldn't be the same one. Finally, this is likely that this Eratos was the father-in-law of Herod Antipas, for those historians Uh, out there and Antipas made war with Herod and uh, uh, it was all over the engagement of his daughter and long story short he was reigning when Paul was in Damascus and it is this guy that he is probably talking about Paul says that he kept the city with a garrison which means there was a watch of men overlooking the city Damascus was surrounded as many ancient cities of that day were surrounded by walls just to let you know, they were putting walls around cities a long time ago. And uh, it did not, just a little, <laughs> my attempt at a political tie in. Uh, but uh, it, uh, apparently, they did not believe that Paul would escape by any other means than going through the gates. So they watched the gates for him to leave. And Paul says in verse 33 and through a window in a basket. I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So when it says a window, it's probably a little little door or aperture that uh, was in the wall, large enough for a person to pit through, uh, fit through. And the word for basket is sarong, and it means a network of cords. So it was probably one of those wicker-like baskets, whatever. So that gets us to chapter 12, verse by verse. Let's read through these verses it says not all of them we'll read through verse six it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory i will come to visions and revelations of the lord i knew a man in christ above 14 years ago whether in the body i cannot tell or whether out of the body i cannot tell god knows such a one caught up to the third heaven I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell God knows, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which were not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory, but of my infirmities. And though I would desire to glory, I should not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be or that he hears of me. All right. Again, the glorying, the boasting bit, but let's get into it. Verse one, he says, it's not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. The King James is a heady thing. The, The YLT translates it this way to boast really is not profitable for me. For I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. To boast isn't good for me, so I am going to now talk about visions and revelations. I've talked to you about my afflictions. Now I'm going to talk to you about visions and revelations. The question we have to ask ourselves is Is he talking about his own visions and revelations, or is he talking about the visions and revelations of another? Uh, and it's, we'll talk all about that But Paul has made it abundantly clear That boasting is fruitless He has said this at least five times In the past uh, couple chapters But he keeps doing it <laughs> The wording here seems to be Such a man as myself Ought not to boast Which is almost a form of boasting uh, but, And I'm, not, I'm sorry I just have to read it How it, how it comes out and, and I'm not making this stuff up Commentators agree He has been accused of being boastful, right? So, uh, but before he stops, he turns to another subject and he says that now he's going to approach another topic under the auspices of boasting, so to speak, visions and revelations of the Lord. I have talked to you about my uh, afflictions, being shipwrecked and beaten and scourged and all these things. Now I'm going to talk to you about visions and revelations of the Lord. You notice I didn't say, Now I'm going to talk to you about my visions and revelations of the Lord. He could have meant his, definitely. In fact, the context suggests he does mean his. But there's some some words here that suggest he's not talking about his own. So I can't tell what he's suggesting that to boast of is permissible. Is it okay to boast of visions and revelations? But, uh, so what Paul might be saying is, it's not good to vo- boast, so I am going to speak of something more remarkable in the life of another man. It, he doesn't tell us that clearly, and so it's left up to some interpretation. Um, our translators have omitted the word gar in the, in the Greek text, and um, I guess they didn't think it was necessary, but Dodderidge, who's a big Bible commentator, long dead, he says, that word means nevertheless, um, or uh, it might be, mean the word then. So let me, it would be, since it's not fit that I should boast, then or nevertheless, I will refer to visions and revelations. I will turn away then from the one subject of my afflictions, which I said I will boast in. Last chapter, last week, we read about him saying, I'll boast in my afflictions. And I'm going to now boast of another area. So the word vision is used in Scripture, and uh, we're all familiar with it. It's, it's a divine communication that was held uh, before. It's also part of the new covenant, according to uh, Joel. And that um, God, I guess, he causes a scene to appear in your eyes, in your mind. Actually, uh, you see something. And it's a, a, it seems to represent usually something of in the future, in the past too, I guess. Um, and it's usually applied to prophecy. It's almost always connected in the Old Testament, but there are some references in the New, as in Acts. The vision which Paul refers to here is one which it could have been him, like I said, or another, that had an insight into the heavenly world, Okay. Uh, in addition to visions, Paul says, and revelations. So, of course, the word revelation, just to let you know when it's used even here, is apocalyptico. And, and what that means, all revelation means is an uncovering. That's what it means, an uncovering. Uh, so, if a woman uh, reveals her covered shoulders, that's, a, that's an apocalypto. She reveals something that isn't seen before. So uh, you remove a veil of uh, ignorance that was once had before, and that's why the Book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse. But by, by the way, by the Catholics, it's not called Revelations or Revelation. It's called the Apocalypse. Why? Because it means the uncovering. The uncovering of what? Well, when Jesus walked on the earth, they asked him, "When will the end be?" He says can't tell you. Only the, my Father in Heaven uh, knows. The angels of Heaven don't know. Well, the uncovering is the revelation of that answer. It's showing the book of Revelation what will happen, what's coming about. This is the, and it's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Reve- uncovering for everybody who could understand it what was going to happen. So I would suggest that it appears that God wants to reveal m- mysteries, things that are covered, to his children. And to uncover what is hidden, um, uh, it seems like it continues to occur between men and women and God as they read and the Holy Spirit reveals things to them. Of course, what's revealed isn't going to be in contradiction to his established word and ways. Uh, They build upon, they don't take away from, and I believe that people can have revelations. I think we have them all the time. I just don't think that they're the kind, you know, like the the, uh, religious prophets and stuff like Joseph Smith say. You're not going to have one that contradicts something that's already been established. So at this point, Paul says, speaking of visions and revelations, ready? I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven." The general opinion on this passage by almost everybody is Paul was talking about himself. He had been accused of being boastful. He has been boasting of his uh, sufferings in the past chapter. Now, instead of implicating himself again in being boastful, he is going to talk in the third person. I, I think that's in the third person when you say, I knew a man. Uh, he's talking about a person that's not him or he's not implicating himself right Uh, we know that it could have been Paul by the record itself because we know that in 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 Acts chapter 14 verse 9 we read this and uh, there were certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul threw him out of the city supposing that he had been dead so this could have been this is what most of the Compilers of scripture and commentators say when he was stoned and they thought he was dead, perhaps that was when he was, not knowing if he was in his body or out of it, caught up to the third heaven and experienced the vision or the revelation that he had. We also know in Acts 22, 17 through 18, that it says, And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a vision. It says, trance in the King James. And saw Jesus say to me, make haste get out of uh, Jerusalem quickly, for they have a testimony concerning me. So we know that he had visions too. So we at least have that, we have some evidence supporting he could have had a revelation or trance based on those two things. And that's the, that's the evidence that scholars use to say Paul was talking about himself. Um, we have some evidence that Paul had not only been considered dead at the one time, but he was also capable of revelations, and so therefore it fits that for him to say that. So you have to decide for yourself if this is Paul not boasting and talking about himself, or if for some odd reason he decides to start speaking of another man. The way he words it, I knew a man 14 years ago. It sounds like that's another person. But when we look at the context of him being accused of boasting— Then he tells this, I knew of a man, and then he's going to say, yet I have a thorn in my side to keep me humble. It seems to be, context says to me, absolutely he's talking about himself. But we're going to read a passage in a minute that will say maybe he's not. So I have to admit, in all probability, uh, looking at the context, he probably is speaking of himself uh, like all the commentators seem to believe. I want to believe that he could be speaking about John the Revelator, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he says, I knew a man in Christ. I was acquainted with a man who's a Christian. That's one thing that makes me think he's talking about someone else. How do you know? Why would he say, I knew a man in Christ? I knew a man who's a Christian. And not just say, I, uh, I knew of a man. I'm talking about myself. When he adds in Christ, that makes me think it's in the fellowship of others. And this is another person. Okay? Okay. Scripture, it's not uncommon to speak in third person. In fact, John the Beloved does it all the time. Uh, He never mentions himself by name in his uh, writings, and it's supposed to be, I, I guess, a form of humility. So maybe Paul is adopting that and doing the same thing. So he says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. Such was one was caught up to the third heaven. So it's commonly held that this epistle was composed around 58 AD. 14 years earlier would have been around 44 AD. Now these are estimations. The first apostolic council held in Jerusalem um, is said to have been about 50 AD. Okay? So if this is 58 AD that he writes this letter, I knew a man 14 years ago. And the Apostolic Council was 50 AD. That's an eight-year difference. It wasn't 14. So we have to uh, this six years of play, uh, and maybe we don't have the right date on the writing of Galatians. Maybe the Apostolic Council was earlier. We don't know. But it's thought by some that John, coming to the first Apostolic Council that we know of for everybody to be there, including Paul, would have met Paul there. they would have been acquainted with each other. And Paul could be referring to John who was receiving the revelation over a course of time, which is also different. Many people believe that John went to the Isle of Patmos and had all of it come to him in an immediate sense. There are some uh, Bible scholars who suggest that he was receiving it incrementally over a period of time and that when he had the first uh, experience of being caught up into heaven, John was caught up into heaven, that he related it to Paul. And so Paul is speaking of him here. So it's in it's in Revelation chapter four, by the way, an early part of the book of Revelation where it says, John says, and after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard, as it were a trumpet talking with me, said, come up hither. And I will show you things which must be hereafter. That's the apocalypto. I'm going to show you things that are going to happen, John. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne that was set in heaven and one sat on that throne. So it's just a thought. But it could be that Paul was referring to the only person we know in the New Testament record that had been taken up to heaven and seen something there, and that's John, okay? Paul doesn't say when I was knocked out and stoned and they thought I was dead, I went into a third heaven or I had some experience. We make a jump thinking that that that's what it was, which is why this opens other people up to suggest Paul is talking about John here. Why would Paul introduce talking about another person's visions and revelations here instead of himself? I don't know. And that seems, that's the difficulty, and in, in, in is whether he really was. So, whether in the body, I cannot tell, Paul says. Well, if it happened to him, he probably wouldn't be able to tell if he was in his body or not. And if it happened to John, he probably wouldn't be able to tell whether it happened in John's body or not. And maybe John wasn't able to articulate what happened. In Revelation, John says, I was out of the body, right? Whether in the body or not in the body, I cannot tell. I don't pretend to know. Uh, the evident idea is that at the time, whatever man it was was in a state of insensibility somehow to his surroundings on this earth and to his corporal body and uh, as if he were almost as if he were dead. What is clear is the man lost all consciousness relative to what we experience in in this life, but there's something really important to um, talk about here with that is that in this between the lines what we know Paul is saying the implication is Paul has given us proof that he was not a materialist it goes down a whole avenue we'd have to spend a little bit of time on it but just understand there are materialists who believe they are religious folk they believe that without a body the soul of a man does not thrive or a woman, mankind. So when you die, the soul immediately goes into soul sleep because there's no body that the soul of the man can can live in and experience life in. They're materialists. They're consummate materialists because they believe there must be a body for a soul to have life. So the soul goes into soul sleep until the resurrection, and then the material body comes up, and the soul has a place to go. Okay, And the ultimate materialist, just as a side note, is Joseph Smith. Because he circumvented that whole deal in when it comes to materialism by saying what we have going on here is um, everything is material. There's no such thing as immaterial material. Everything is matter. So when you die, that material soul goes to God and later will be joined with the material body at a resurrection that comes out of a grave and will enter into a material kingdom because everything that can be considered real is material, you see. So Paul here, the reason this is important, Paul is saying whether I was in my body or not, I can't tell. What he's saying is there is existence outside of connection to the material body. It's an indirect thing, but he's saying that. And that proves he was not a materialist when it came to the afterlife. And it's, it's subtle, but it's there. So um, getting back to this, he claims he is unaware of the state in which he or the man caught up uh, in the third heaven, but says God knows what it was. All right, Needs no explanation. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And let's just get to it right away. You already know all this probably, but such a one caught up. Harpazo means when he says that person was caught up, it means um, there's a little lamb out in a field and a coyote runs up and grabs it and takes off in its jaws. That's the imagery of Harpazo. It wasn't like, oh, I'm floating. Oh, look what's happening. Huh? It was boom. Sorry to wake you up. It was sudden. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was just like a, just a grasping and taking. All right. And that's a, that word has given us a real idea of how it happened. All right. And he conveys that this foreign force seized him or seized or whoever it was and snatched him up to the third heaven and we know from the writings of the Jews that they broke up heaven. Uh, and sometimes they talked about seven heavens. That's where we get the phrase, seven, seventh heaven. Uh, the Jews had talked about a lot of levels of heaven. And they broke it down into a lot of spatial categories. But just to let you know, the Bible talks about three heavens. And um, among the Jews, especially in the apostolic age, the three heavens were the first heaven was what's above us. The clouds, the birds, the air, that's the first heaven. The second heaven is everything that is above that sphere, which would be the stars, the planets, and the sun. And the third heaven would be what is above that, which is the area where God would dwell. Uh, Okay? So uh, the starry heavens and then the uh, heavenly heavens. Of course, it's in that upper heaven, that third heaven, is where Paul is saying he was snatched up to, Or the other person was. And uh, I knew, verse 3, he repeats it. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. So occasionally in Holy Scripture, uh, phrases and words are repeated for emphasis. And Paul does that here. He was intimately acquainted with such a man in Christ and whether they're in the body or out of the body, doesn't know. All of that was known to God. And then he says in verse 4, how that he was caught up into paradise now, he says, not heaven. Paradiso here, not paradiso here, uh not uh, Oranos, which is heaven. So uh, the first time he says was caught up to the third heaven, now he says was caught up to paradise. And heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So either he did it or John said, I went up to this the third heaven. And not only a third heaven, I went up to paradise and I heard things, Paul, I can't tell you. It's not lawful for me to even utter them. Or Paul's talking about himself. Um, the word paradise is purposeful. It describes um, part of the third heaven and that's important to know, that you can talk about the third heaven and not be talking about paradise. You're just talking about the whole heaven where that is separate from the stars and planets where God is. And if you talk about paradise, now you're talking about the place where God is. All right. And so it's uh, paradisos, and it occurs three times in the New Testament. It occurs here. It occurs in in Luke 23, 43, where Jesus says, To the thief on the cross, verily, today you will be with me in paradisos. You'll be with me, thief on the cross, in the place, in the garden. Okay? In Revelation 2, 7, the third place, says, He that has an ear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradisos of God. Okay? So, of course... This last, uh, mentioned by Paul, is the third one. It's interesting that the Revelation passage talks about a tree that's in the midst of the paradisos of God. Why would that be interesting? Because if you look at the Old Testament translation of the Greek, which is called the Septuagint, this term is translated garden every time. And it is almost ubiquitous among most of the ancient cultures uh, to believe that our paradise after this life, there is a garden. When Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in a garden. A heavenly garden is really the best way to understand paradisos there. Uh, it's used 14 times in the Old Testament. I could give you the references. And it has its origins in, uh, in uh, Eastern Asia. The Sanskrit, it uh, uses the word paradisha, And that means an elevated, cultivated land. So ties into a garden. Uh, the Armenian paradise describes a garden all around. The house with planted trees and shrubs uh, used for ornamentation. In Persia, the word for uh, paradise are pleasure gardens and parks with wild animals for uh, monarchs and for princes. All of those cultures have a word that relates to paradisos that the Greeks have. Later, the Greeks and the Romans took, uh, and other Western languages took, Um, these words from that far east culture and then they applied them to the blessed uh, place of the dead so uh, the dwelling place of God and of happy spirits in heaven you will go to a place that is if you're in the city of God which I say is the new Jerusalem so there's heaven where God uh, we're we're above everything else and then there's the New Jerusalem, and in that new Jerusalem is a garden, and in that garden is a tree of life. I mean, that's how it seems to be uh, said. So it seems, if scripture is describing it right for us today, when you take your last breath, if you're his, you're going to find yourself somehow in a heaven, in a city, in a garden, by a tree of life. That's what it seems to be telling us. So that's really the only thing we get on Afterlife in terms of real hard facts in the Bible. We don't have angels sitting on clouds playing harps. We have heaven, city, garden, tree of life, God's throne, presence. So um, whoever went there, whether it was Paul or, or John, they heard unspeakable words. And that meant that either words that could not be spoken or words that should not be spoken. So we don't know what uh, it means according to the language. Paul meant most of the commentators who know Greek really, really well say Paul was saying I can't do justice to the words that would that were spoken there. That that seems to be the thing. He goes so far as to say that the words were not lawful, no one should attempt it. It might be also true that it would not be possible for him to convey that kind of language. Or John said, I can't even. And that's why the book of Revelation, perhaps, is so esoteric and difficult to get. Because what John was seeing, he could only put in English, not English, in language that could best describe what it was, instead of having the full vocabulary to explain it. The Jews held that the that there were some words that were unlawful to speak. You know this, the Tetragrammaton, which is the YHWH, which they say is so holy, it doesn't, have cons- it doesn't have vowel markings, we don't know the pronunciation, we will not even attempt to say it. So every time they came across the YHWH Tetragrammaton in Scripture, they would replace it with Adonai, which is translated in English to Lord. L O R D, all uppercase, Adonai. So they would not even attempt to write the letters of his holy name. So not speaking some things from heaven is part of an ancient culture. Um, but they also say that could be just from superstition that that came about and not from the mouth of God. John and Paul, however, were taken to heaven, entered in John or Paul, and entered into this vision and returned to earth and we're not qualified to convey what happened. That's not unusual. In, we know Enoch and Elijah uh, were both taken to heaven, but they returned not to bring uh, information for men. Uh, we know Elijah appeared with Moses on, uh, in conversation with Jesus, but that was to converse with him about his death on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what they talked about. There was no discussing what is going on In conversations in heaven, Lazarus raised from the dead in John 11 and many other saints, supposedly that were raised from the dead, they didn't come back with messages from the grave. They didn't uh, say so. Has that changed today? I don't know Um, if it has. We have to ask, why wasn't Paul? Why wasn't John able to uh, convey what the words were spoken in heaven? And yet we have people dying all the time now and they they experience an afterlife uh, experience and come back and share with us what was there. You know, uh, it seems that the story Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus held weight because there was still a gulf between uh, paradise and prison and there was no one could bridge that gulf. And so uh, maybe Sheol was impassable then. There was a reason it couldn't be talked about. But once all the elements of that age have been fulfilled and completed, Perhaps we entered into an age where people now die, they experience an afterlife thing. I have good friend Eric. He may be watching right now. He spends his life uh, researching Christian stories of af- near death experiences, and he talks all about them. And he, I'm a very cynical. I'm not easy, easily convinced on anything, but I am intrigued by it all, and I love the hearts of people who seem to have those experiences. But it seems like in biblical times, people weren't going to heaven and coming back and telling people what happened. And it might be because of all the sheol and everything else had not been overcome yet. Uh, But again, maybe the people who are having these experiences now, I mean, there is certainly a response that says it's all biological. It's just chemicals in the brain. And that's the other side to it. In any case, Paul adds at verse five, of such and one will I glory. Okay? So he has said it's not good for him to boast in glory, but here's talking of visions and revelations. he says, "Of such a one who's had this, I will glory. Yet of myself, I will not glory but in my affirmities. Last week he gloried in his affirmities. I've suffered this, I've suffered that, I've suffered this. He's boasted in those. And he says, "I will boast in nothing but my affirmities last week." This week he enters into this topic and he says, "Uh, but of this one I will glory, yet of myself I will not glory. And this is what gives me cause to wonder if there was another person he's actually talking about and that other person revealed in Scripture as having gone to heaven was John the Revelator. So that's why there are some good Christian uh, people who believe he's talking about John. They put that together. It's very strange for him to say... uh, He's playing a really intense word game here if it was him. Because, I mean, I have a hard time with it because the term such a one is toyotos and it means such an individual. And the word for myself is emotu and it means myself. This individual I'll boast in, myself I will not. What individual? The one who was taken to the third heaven. To dice that up in a word game so as to not appear boastful, it's really, really strange. I, I, you know, He doesn't normally do that. He's very plain and direct in his speaking. And that leads me more to, to conclude it possibly could have been John. So that ends that. Let's sojourn out a little bit more as Paul continues his thought on boasting again. He says, For though I would desire to boast, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he hears of me. So, for though I want to boast in in glory, I am not going to be a fool. He continues on now at verse 6. He seems to be saying that if he chose to boast, he could boast above anybody else. But he's not going to choose to do that. I will not be a fool. And he says, for I will say the truth. I'm not going to hold back unless any man should think of me more than he thinks of me to be or what he hears of me. I'm not going to boast of my own accomplishments in the faith uh, just in case someone might, might start to think more of me than what I am. Uh, I don't need to do that. I'm frankly really uh, bored with the topic of boasting. Uh, and I bet if you've been listening to the verse by verse, you're getting tired of the topic of boasting. But uh, I think it's kind of nonsensical to tell you the truth, I don't see it as something that is really, I think it's him having to defend himself to the uh, Corinthian church of the charges that he's a boastful non-apostle, and that's why we get three chapters of it. Uh, But uh, finally, he adds insight that is not boasting directly, but it still almost has a boastful tone to it, because listen to what he says at verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. So he's saying, I've had these revelations, if I should be exalted above them. So that ties into the revelations being about him. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above all calculations. All right. So even in that, even in that, there is a, a, a tendency for us, possibly errantly, to see boasting in it, because what he says is, unless I should be exalted way above everybody else completely through the abundance of the revelations and the tribulations, we could add, there was given me a thorn in the flesh the messenger of Satan to buffet me unless I should be exalted beyond all comprehension. All right. To keep me from being totally self-confident, vain, boastful, uh, and to prove that I really was a special servant from heaven, he says... I think it was normal for Paul to be subject to spiritual pride. Paul is a man. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And he experienced things that could potentially make anybody proud of who they were. There's an abundant reason to believe that he was naturally proud. I mean, he was by nature self-confident. He was going around putting Christians to death. He had no problem with that. He says, I have done more work than all of my brothers. He, he has a confidence about him. We might not say that he's arrogant, and we might not even say he's proud. We might just say he has a confidence that's mistaken for those things. And when it comes to when he became a Christian, therefore, maybe that's something he had to deal with, was this confidence that was interpreted as pride. Because he has definitely been favored in his call as an apostle, in his ability to write, in ability to convert, in ability to suffer, in ability to keep going. So, in the standing he had with the other apostles and maybe among some of the saints, he admits something. He says, There was given me a thorn in my flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The word which Paul uses is worthy of some real notice because he says, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. He doesn't complain complain about it. He speaks of it as a favor, as something that was imposed upon him as a means to keep him humble and low. It was given him, and he doesn't speak of it even as an affliction. Uh, He speaks of it as a gift. And I think that's pretty good. I think that's pretty wise that if you can see your afflictions in the flesh as a gift, because what they do is they keep us leveled. They bring us low in the presence of our God. And some of us need them. I got a lot of them. I'm a thorn bush in my flesh. So this thorn in the flesh served to keep Paul Humble. The word years, scolops, it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And it means anything sharp and pointy. And uh, the word is used in the Septuagint to denote uh, thorns and prickles. It says in uh, Hosea, I will hedge up thy way with thorns. OK, so whether he refers to some infirmity or pain in the flesh or some psychosis or some other spirit or some sexual deviancy or or blindness, or all of these things have been bandered around. Everyone has an opinion. In fact, just for some hilarity's sake, let me share with you some of the commentators of old opinion going way back to the early church. What they said was was the thorn in Paul's flesh. Baxter, for some odd reason, thinks the thorn was a stone. I mean, that's what he writes big time. It was a stone. I don't understand that, but that's what he says. Dauteridge thinks that he entered into the third heaven and what he saw caused him to have nervous speech and a twisted face. That's a quote. So he came back and he was not real good to look at. And that is supported by some of the early church fathers writings of Paul uh, not being so kind to look at and be contemptible in his speech. Uh, the latin fathers the roman catholic sage age uh, believed that he was governed by some unruly lust that's the i mean it just whatever thing that they are saying is on him seems to tie in with what the focus was of that period of time that the researcher or commentator is writing but the catholics thought he was consumed by a lust maybe i mean maybe it was homosexuality i don't know maybe it was heterosexual i we don't know but The Catholics believed the thorn in his flesh was lust. Uh, Chrysostosome and Jerome believed that he had a headache all the time. Tertullian, an earache. And Rosemuller supposed that he had gout of the head. (laughs) I mean, I'm dying researching this stuff. You guys aren't even giving me a cackle, except for thank you. Uh, (laughs) The biggie in our age is he had a sight problem because Paul says, I write with large letters to you, meaning they're easier to see, and that he tells the, uh, the, the church that at Galatia that they would have plucked their eyes out for him and given him a new set of eyes if it were possible. So what they do is they read that about his personal life and they say that was the thorn in his flesh. It was poor eyesight. Uh, bottom line, we don't know. Uh, I personally think that Paul had a prejudice against left-handed people with beards. And uh, that is my official stance. So there was given him a thorn in the flesh. And Paul adds, but Paul adds about that thorn, the messenger of Satan, which is what caused the the Latin fathers to believe it was lust. Uh, Among the Hebrews, it was customary to attribute uh, physical ailments to Satan. And uh, and there's reason. Job uh, 2.6 says, The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Just don't take his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of Job and smote him with boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So because of stuff like that, the Jews believed that when you had an ailment, Satan was the one who was able to do it. Paul could have been believing that, and Paul could have been right. Perhaps still in that day when Satan was a roaring lion because he knew the time was short, he inflicted Paul, and maybe God let him. So we remember Jesus saying to the Pharisees that they didn't want Jesus to heal a woman on the Sabbath. And he said, he said to them, Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus, too, in correcting the Pharisees who were saying, you shouldn't be healing her, he says, this is a daughter of Abraham. Who cares if it's a Sabbath day? Shouldn't she be loosed from Satan's grip, from the ailment that she had? So in the time of the Savior, malignant spirits were known to take possession of the body in numerous ways and to produce painful things. Paul says here that Satan was permitted this calamity to buffet him, is what he says. To smite him, to mistreat him—the meaning is that Satan's design was to deeply afflict him. Uh, why? Because, plain and simple, uh, it offset all the good traits that he possessed and kept him humble. It was the balancer. It was the thorn. And so we can uh, we can also look to your own lives. If you have something in your life, if you have one of these reoccurring themes that never seems to go away, if you have a problem you can't seem to overcome. If it stays with you, whatever it might be, it's possible that, you know, there's Paul says, I asked three times that God would release me from it. And God's like, no, not going to do it. My grace is sufficient for you. You're, you know, you're saved by me. Uh, you're going to have this problem. And there's some there's some real hope in that, because, you know, we are saved by grace. We are not saved by our righteousness. So remember that when you're afflicted by something a reoccurring problem whatever that thing is because that has been taken care of by jesus you're saved by your faith on him you are not saved by your righteousness to come to him you're not saved by your unsaved by your unrighteousness it is him and we look to him in faith because we're sinful So if you find yourself dealing with something that you can never get over, and it may not be a sinful nature, it may just be something about your body, it may be something about your mind, your inabilities, your your failures, that is all taken into account. And God says, I know what I'm doing to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. So trust that his grace is sufficient for you. That he, son, came and overcame all that on your behalf and that you don't have to worry about this failure in the flesh because when you die... That flesh is going into the ground and you are going to a different place and the flesh will no longer have power over you. Uh, It's just a temporary thing. So in Revelations 3.19, God says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. In Hebrews 12.5, he writes, And you have forgotten the exhortation that speaks unto you as children, my son. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked, of him for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges, removes the flesh off every son whom he receives. He removes the flesh off. Uh, Proverbs three twelve, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So just understand when you're underneath that that uh, that heat, it's because he loves you. And that is mocked by this world, but it's understood by those who know the Lord. And for these reasons and more, Paul seems to have considered this chastening that he had, this buffeting of Satan, uh, the thorn in his uh, side, a gift, and one that would serve him to keep him on the path of humility, great humility. Of course, the application is clear to all of us, and uh, we can walk away with that note. We stopped at verse 7, and we'll continue on, wrapping up, hopefully, chapter 12, and then 13, and then we'll go to the next book be thinking about which one you want to cover. There's, there's a limited number, and I'll tell you what they are next week. Questions, comments?
1: Hi, Sean. Hello. This is Patrick. Hello. Um, I can't wait to get out of Second Corinthians. Me either. Here's the, here's the deal, because Paul keeps boasting about these things, and I just want to get to meet of doctrine... Does that make sense? Yeah. And then, um, because just on and on. Galatians,
0: he gets into some good meat.
1: Yeah, like, come on, Paul. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't blame him. I mean. Right. It was a letter. Yeah. Yeah. And I can apply that to my own life. Sometimes, well, in a way, I can apply it to my own life. Sometimes um, I complain too much about life. I should look at the positive and Paul's looking at reminding us look at the positive look what I went through I went through all this stuff I glory in my tribulations and I'm like (laughs) I'm not glorying Right. I want the Lord to take this away
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you see my point it's a great comment so I still learn even though it's sometimes no offense to Apostle Paul but boy I still learn you don't make it boring. It's just like... No, I agree with you. I so, just want the meat.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, but like you said, there's always lessons in it.
1: Now, I know you're going to cover this next week or maybe the week after, but I still want to point it out.
0: Be my guest.
1: The, uh, this is 13, chapter 13, 14. Okay. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all mm-hmm. that to me sounds Trinitarian it does doesn't it and when you go to Trinitarian churches especially liturgical like East Orthodox, and, and, and uh, Luther they say and the communion of the Holy Spirit and they, stay, they recite this all the time
0: well we certainly know there's three we know there's Father we know there's Son and we know there's Holy Spirit so there's definitely three so that's, that's not a
1: surprising thing it'll be fun when we get to that passage. yeah I can't wait I'm so excited okay thank you sir. thanks brother
2: it's okay. I don't. I'm gonna once again. I'm gonna get back over here because I don't want to. I was gonna say here. Um, I hope this is kind of related to what you're talking about. Forgive me if I'm. Uh, forgive me if I'm off subject a little bit. Uh, but uh, how do you uh, uh kind of convince people in a way when you talking about how people give their eyes for Paul if they had if they could? Uh, because I'm assuming. Correct me if I'm wrong. They were that this man is repented. That's one thing I like about the Bible is that with Saint Paul compared to a lot of other saints, other people, he went from complete murderer. Uh, to complete man who says, I am the chief among sinners. You know, I have this thorn in my side and he wishes he could get rid of it, but overall he changed his life through love. How do you really convince people who have gone through such a sinful time that your, your life can't change with love? It's not wrong to love, and love can change your mind. It can change your life and your attitude. And it's not the romantic love, not kissing and hugging, that kind of love, where well, a lot of people think if I just have that kind of sexual love, my whole life will change, and really they're empty time and time again. Because you're looking at the wrong love. How do you convince someone uh, overall through the Bible like uh, uh, that, uh, that your life can change for the greater good with actual platonic love, which is what I try to get at people? You know, there's nothing more powerful. Yeah, it's nice to have romance. It's nice to have a wife and yeah, yeah. But really, what sustains a lot is platonic love, even in the marriage. I'm not never been married, but what I've seen, in my parents' marriage is platonic love, of family love, yeah. of of, of uh, supporting each other. And how do you how do you really convince hate to sound repetitive? How do you convince someone that through brotherly love and sisterly love that you can actually uh, change a life from, uh, from being very sinful and destructive to something of more. Um, what's the word here? I'm looking. For? The opposite of destruction, more supportive, more rebuilding. You know, so like, do you, you kind of the same? I think you just
0: said it all. I think you said everything necessary to say. And I think right. people who aren't looking, they listen to you, Eric. I think those are those are great uh, words of advice.
2: Yeah, but like, because uh, cause like, there's so many people out there. They have such a tough time thinking that. The old ways what they're doing eventually will work out when it hasn't. It's actually all saying, don't stop doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a new and better result. You have to realize, okay, we're not doing something right. We have to do what is actually beneficial. I mean, you don't pour acid on a flower and expect it to grow. It's just not going to work. You know, so like that. But, anyway, thank you.
0: Thank you, brother. Thank you for your feedback uh, considerations, too.
3: This is Ray. going back to the first four verses there the, the LDS church of course uses those in a little different context in that they use the third heaven tie that back into Corinthian, or, yeah, Corinthians and then they talk about paradise as being part of the spirit world and they tie that into Peter and the spirit prison uh, how do you how do you refute that
0: <laughs> uh, with context? Not that,
3: not that I believe it. I just right. No,
0: it's just it's just the 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 tragic and the I guess the frighteningly beautiful thing about Mormonism is that he, Smith was able to really weave a seamless body of theology that if you look at it through their lens, he's covered the bases and they have their answers. And it makes a certain amount of sense. It does make a certain amount of sense. Yeah. Uh, But if you look at context and you look at the Greek, um, it's the only way to show the holes in that uh, diabolical counterfeit. And that's why it's such a good counterfeit. I mean, it would be no good if it wasn't good, right? So uh, I don't know, you know, you ha- and that, that's the other problem is when you're sitting with an LDS person, the last thing they want to do is get into the Greek and the context. They just want hit, to hit you with every point that they've got and throw your point. You can't get into anything deep enough. So I guess the long, uh, the, long, the short answer, Ray, is they have to have the spirit convict them first. Their heart has to change. They have to want the truth, and then they're open to seeing it. But until then, they're going to continue to believe what Paul says are fables and lies. And it's a good one. Yeah.
3: Uh, one I, other item, and that is the thorn of, in the sight of Paul. Yeah. Uh, I kind of lean towards the, the idea that that was a spiritual or a temptation okay. rather than a physical thing. Okay. Uh, in fact... Uh, in the NIV version it says that the thorn was uh, let me just read it to you I can find it he says I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me Mm. so that kind of indicates that it Spiritual. it was a spiritual temptation of some kind that paul had and then the next verse that says the lord told him he, he went to the lord said take this away from me mm-hmm. he says my grace will take it away from you it's a temptation mm-hmm. Just, just
0: the do catholics away with agree it. and the latin fathers agree with you it was a they said it was lust which is a temptation but they said it's a spiritual thing and it's, it seems more, I don't know, there's, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it was a physical ailment. Because Paul endured so much physical stuff, I don't think that would have kept him humble. Uh, I think it was something that was spiritual and probably a temptation that he could have fallen prey to several times. Right? Yeah. Yes. I agree with you. But not everyone does, you know. Interesting. Uh, is that it? All right. Listen, uh, you know, we're here one day, we're gone the next. Some of you know that last week, heart of the matter, our brother who comes to milk, uh, sitting right here laughing with his wife at the interview and with, talking with the guest, uh, went home and he uh, didn't wake up. They don't know why. His name's Mike Johnson and he passed away. His wife is torn up and his uh, son. The funeral Saturday. Uh, we'll post it somewhere to let you know if you want to come, if you knew Mike heritage park Uh, but um, we talk about all this stuff for a reason and you know we want to reflect upon that destination we all are going to have one day we're not going to wake up and why are we doing this and what is it about in our lives is this translating to something that is going to behoove that future destination and that's why we do it you know so just think about that because it brings right to the forefront. I mean it makes me reflect. I'm teaching this this man every week. It makes me even more reflective of how serious that is. You know, he's in the presence of God, you know, and I'm teaching things and I certainly hope there they are in harmony with the spirit of God, you know. So it gives all of us a chance to reflect, but keep the Johnson family in your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we do pray for the uh, Johnsons, for Jill and for Michael, who are devastated by the loss of her husband and dad. And we just pray that your spirit will be with them and comfort them and help them as they uh, face this sudden tragedy, unexpected tragedy uh, in their family. And uh, we pray that your spirit will be with them in abundance and comfort them at this time. And all those who have suffered such loss, help Lisa as she's passing from this world to the next. Uh, that she, too, will be comforted and be able to uh, uh, have peace as she goes through these last stages of physical life. We pray for uh, Liz, who's moving to Florida. Last day today was was today here in Utah. and Just pray that she'll have a fellowship and and love and friendship there in the faith and have a good experience as she moves her life there. And then we uh, pray for everybody else who uh, is in need of you right now, And who uh, needs to know of your presence. We also pray for Patrick's mom, Suzanne Larley, her health, seizures, her body pain. We pray for Patrick's brother, Paul, that he will come to know the Lord and come in relationship with him. And Eric, we pray that he will have three babies and have $25 million plus a wife. That's what's on the prayer list. So. Whatever people put, that's what we say, and that's what Eric needs and wants in his life. He's lonely, he wants a partner and a companion, he wants to raise a family, and he wants to be wealthy. So we pray that if that's your will for Eric, that that will happen. Help all of us to have the righteous desires of our hearts. Move forward now into this world for the next week, and we come together next week. In Jesus' name, amen.